This is Existential, the podcast that reminds us that we're human first before we're anything else. And from that place, we can hear each other's stories and experiences as we wrestle with issues of justice, faith, and culture. I'm your host, Corey Leak. Thanks for listening. Uh, Existential today on the podcast, I have my friend Daniel Hawthorne, uh, who is the VP of programs at this really cool organization called Code 2040. Danielle, hello. Thank you for stopping by to talk to me today. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm I'm excited to be here and to talk with you more about what I do and just like what's happening. So yeah, thanks. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So last week, well, maybe it was last a couple weeks ago, we had a conversation. And I was fascinated by it. And I was like, I want to do this conversation on the podcast. And um, so, like, could you start by just telling telling us a little bit, those who don't know, a little bit about, about what Code 2040 is? That's fine. Well, what Code 2040 Sorry. is. No worries. Uh, <laughs> right? The challenges of working from home. The, Absolutely. The gardeners yeah. here today. And we're, we're all doing We're all doing the same thing. Yeah. Um, but tell us a little bit about what Code uh, 2040 is in the work that you do. I think is awesome. Yeah. So Code 2040 is an organization that was started by Tristan Walker and Laura Weidman Powers. Um, they were students at Stanford at the time. And as they were kind of navigating their educational career, they noticed that there were not a lot of Black and Latinx students in tech and uh, working in tech. And as they were talking to companies, companies were telling them a lot of like what we heard the other day from the CEO of Wells Fargo, like we just can't find Black people or Latinx people who are qualified or who are in the pipeline. And so they created Code 2040 then as a way to get Black and Latinx people in the pipeline to prove to companies that there are uh, Black and Latinx folks who want to be in tech and who are pursuing tech. Um, And over the years, through our our work and our research, we've learned that pipeline actually isn't the problem. There are plenty of Black and Latinx folks who are in tech, who are getting CS degrees, who are pursuing their academia career in tech. The problem actually is tech companies. The problem is systemic barriers. The problem is uh, broken hiring practices. And so we have shifted our work. And now what we do is we are an organization that works to bring full representation of Black and Latinx individuals in tech by breaking down systemic barriers that have kept them out of tech um, and continue to not only keep them out of tech, but keep them from uh, promoting and becoming in positions of leadership in tech. And so we do that through programs. We have a fellows program that we do through the summer where we partner college students with top tech companies. We give them a mentor. We do racial equity learnings throughout the summer. Um, We do manager trainings for managers who are um, over black and Latinx interns and employees. Uh, We talk about the the spectrum of advocacy and how people can move along that spectrum. Um, So it's really exciting work that we do. We do a lot of data and research. And so in my role there, I'm the VP of programs, like you mentioned, and I get over oversee all of those programs alongside my team to make sure that we're continually equipping uh, folks entering the tech sector for this broken system that they have Mm. to navigate until we Mm. can fix the system. Yeah, that is amazing. So yeah, that was, that was one of the things that really struck me last time we talked was when you talked about it not being a pipeline issue. And, and actually, after talking to you, when I saw the comments that the Wells Fargo CEO made, I was like, no, nah, I don't think that's right. Because there was a time where I might have believed mm-hmm. that 
the reason, part of the reason why you don't see black and brown folks in some of these industries is because we're not interested or we don't, you know, we're, we're not, you know, we, we don't, it's not something we want to do or whatever, or that we've learned to do. Mm-hmm. And when you told me about, um, I think you told me, that, you told me a, a number of, a, I did, a, yeah. a percentage of, of black and, and Latinx folks that have degrees. Yeah, it's 20% of CS degrees are are held by Black and Latinx uh, individuals, but less than 10% of them, so like 0.9% of them actually work in the tech field. And then let's not talk about like venture capitalists and folks in leadership. And even here in the Silicon Valley, those numbers decrease um, Mm. as we get closer to proximity with them here in our like location, our physical location. It's fascinating. Mm. You know what I mean? And when I heard him the other day, I was like, that is actually the lowest form of laziness. You know what I mean? <laughs> Instead of doing the work to just like, they just aren't there. I don't know where they're at. They're not qualified, whatever. You know what yeah. I mean? It's just yeah. laziness on their part because they're there. Yeah. Well, they're reaching, I think they, they tend to reach in, in all industries. I mean, you and I both have had experience in like the, 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 religious space, you know, as pastors and church leaders, that they, they all tend to reach for their own network and their own circles and their own circles tend to have people who look like them and act mm-hmm. like them and, and, and they people that they can identify with. Mm-hmm. Now you, you mentioned this term that I love um, because I love, I love having handles to name the stuff that we all know is there. Mm-hmm. And you just named this, this thing, systemic barriers. Now, yeah. What are some of those systemic barriers uh, that you found in the in the tech world, but it also I think this probably you know this probably works across mm-hmm. all of corporate America mm-hmm. um, that slants towards white people. What are these barriers mm-hmm. that like keep keep black and brown folks from from being able to thrive in corporate yeah. America? Yeah. So I I don't know that the ones that we experience transition to all industries, I would imagine to some degree that they do, especially when we think about hiring. Um, I can say that I, I believe that hiring and how companies hire definitely slants towards white people. So one of the things that we see is they use GPA as an indicator, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's problematic because um, you don't necessarily need a 4.0 GPA to do a job. You need the skills to do that job. Mm-hmm. And when you focus on GPA as an indicator of success, you overlook so many people who are qualified and skilled to do a job, but may have encountered life circumstances mm-hmm. um, in terms of resources, in terms of time that may have prevented them from excelling at the degree that you see other folks excelling at. Mm-hmm. So um, the other thing that I'll say in terms of that is uh, university pedigree is another one that we see. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are areas that traditionally exclude Black and Latinx folks because of resources, right? Because mm-hmm. of finances, because of um, cultural makeup and the things that we as a people have to deal with. I remember being in college and in my second year of college, my mother was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And for me, that meant I had to leave college, right? Mm-hmm. I couldn't live on campus because I needed to move home to care for her so that my dad could continue to work to support our family. And my GPA took a hit. I mm-hmm. still graduated, right? And I can mm-hmm. tell you there are very few jobs that I've not gotten, you know what I mean, as a result of that. But that's because there were people that I encountered in my journey that chose to see me and my skills versus the GPA that took a huge hit because I had to move home. And there mm-hmm. are a number of Black and Latinx people that experience those same things. And so GPA is one, university pedigree, where you go to school should not be an indicator of whether or not you are qualified to do a job. Mm -hmm. Where you go to school, it could be evident of like resources available to you, 
It could be, it could be uh, location, you know, and your ability yeah. to go to school at some of these in, uh, PWIs. And so those are barriers that companies use. Um, and it's, it's a system. It's another system. We talk about these systems that are propped up to keep black and Latinx folks out. This is another system that's propped up to keep them out. Wow. Do you find it like the people you work with? Um, I mean, it, I don't even really even know how to like process what I'm thinking, but I'm, I guess I'll just verbally process it. We're yeah, on, we are yeah. on a podcast after all. Right, right. Um, but like I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about how, how much the everyday, you know, white person may deny racism, right? Deny mm -hmm. that that's a factor in their lives, deny mm -hmm. that that affects the way they view mm -hmm. their neighbor who moves in or moves mm -hmm. out. That may be a person of color. Mm -hmm. Like, do you find that the, the CEOs you sit down with or, or, or engage with, or these companies you engage with, are they aware? Are they like coming to you guys saying, look, we recognize that there is a, a whiteness that it becomes a barrier to people of color in our industry and in our organization, or are, is there some other motivating factor for why they're talking to you? <laughs> I think some are. Um, and we have a phrase that, you know, my CEO, Carla Monterroso says, like, we're not in the business of handing out cookies to people who don't deserve them. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we I think that some might be. But I think by and large, uh, racism and lack of diversity, equity and inclusion is just bad business. Right. Mm -hmm. The reason our company is named Code 2040 is because 2040 marks the year when the majority minority will flip. It's actually kind of, uh, approaching sooner than 2040. We've found mm -hmm. out now, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. that's the year. And so if companies aren't figuring this thing out when it comes to black and Latinx talent, they are going to find themselves not able to maintain business because the mm -hmm. majority of the people in our country will be black and Latinx. And so what we see are companies who are realizing this and scrambling to fix it um, so that they can their businesses can remain profitable and relevant and they can have a product that caters to the market that you know we're moving towards mm. and so while I think I'd like to believe that there are some who you know really want this fixed I think by and large many companies are just trying to keep up with uh what is necessary for them to maintain. Yeah. 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 Well, and in the tech space specifically, like you have, I think you and I talked about like facial recognition software and oh things like gosh. that, that like how, when you don't have mm -hmm. representation of black and brown people, that yeah. these, these, these breakthroughs in technology can actually continue and to uphold systemic racism and white supremacy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, we've definitely found that to be true. And we've actually, and so one of the things that we do as a part of like a partnership with us is like we reveal to you those areas in your organization that are problematic, that uh, need reevaluation, that are harmful to Black and Latinx people. And yes, we've sat down um, with a couple of companies that do facial recognition and shown them how the technology that they're creating is harmful to Black and Latinx people and why they need Black and Latinx talent, not just in their organization, but at the at the table where decisions are made yeah. on the forefront of product development, you know, um, it's not enough to have someone black or Latinx, you know, um, as an individual contributor. You need those people as leaders in your organization to help inform um, decisions that are being made at every level of the organization. Yeah, and sometimes I think it's, I think there's this idea that like if I just have you know, some black folks, some Latinx, Latinx folks in, in the room, mm -hmm. that's, that's, 
I've achieved, like I've gotten yeah. to, you know, to the end game. And what you're talking about now that I think is, I think is so important is this idea that they, that, that they are empowered That's right. and feel a sense of safety, even in that empowerment, you know, cause mm-hmm. I've been in situations where I had, I was empowered, I had authority mm-hmm. in name, but when it came time to make decisions, I really couldn't make those kind of decisions. And, exactly. and, and I can, I remember, I think it was um, probably two or three years ago when Nike came out with the, um, uh, gosh, there was those, there were those Nikes, uh, the Betsy Ross Nikes with the Betsy Ross flag on them. Okay. And Colin Kaepernick came out and, 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 you know, was talking about how, you know, that was racist and things like that. And then there was the, I think Gucci did something. There was a couple companies that came out with these racist, you know, Yeah. uh, H&M was one. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh And I remember thinking to myself, you know, or even saying out loud, that's because you don't have black and brown folks at the table. That's but right. It's actually, not that they don't have black and brown folks at the table. It's that they have not empowered. Those black and brown folks don't feel any sense of empowerment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And how how do you guys help yeah. um, to empower black yeah. and brown folks that, to not just be sitting at the table as like props, mm-hmm. but to yeah. actually have a voice and, and some influence. Yeah. So I think it's a couple of things. It's empowering black and brown voices, but it's also, I think these companies are completely oblivious to the environments that they create for black and brown folks mm. also. Um, and so one of the things that we do for black and Latinx folks is we show them what it looks like to advocate in these spaces. So we mm. actually do the learnings. We take them through a curriculum that we've developed that shows them, here's how you tell our story. Here's how you tell your story as a black and brown person in these workspaces. Here's how you take control of the narrative because we know that's another piece of it too like you get in these spaces and then you don't feel like you can contribute because you feel like your hands are tied and telling your story and being your authentic self um and giving feedback and asking for feedback from your manager so that you can grow and build your career the way you want to you know what i mean mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. one of the things that we see a lot is like black and latinx folks do not get feedback the same way that their white counterparts do mm. they just don't mm. um they ask for it and And it's really generic. It's really watered down. It's not nailed to anything specific or tangible or oriented to their growth. And so one of the things that we really do is we help them set Mm -hmm. up these opportunities to give and to give, because that's the other one, Mm -hmm. but to receive robust feedback from their manager so that they can actually grow. Um, And that's another way that you empower Black and Latinx folks um, who aren't necessarily at the table of leadership, but you create an environment for Black and Latinx folks to feel safe because that's the other thing. The power dynamics that exist in workspaces are not conducive for Black and Latinx folks to speak up and speak out. It's Mm. actually oftentimes harmful to their careers, to their reputations. And as big as tech is, it is also really small. And so if you speak out in an environment that's harmful or toxic for you, it can not only impact your standing at your current company, it can potentially follow you if Mm. you go elsewhere. Mm. Well, so one of the things I'm thinking about as you're talking um, in, in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space, there's this you know idea of bystander intervention. Like if you are if you're not a black and brown person and you work with black and brown people, mm-hmm. uh, what are the ways that like you uh, can be an ally? Can be uh, can help? Can speak up? Can yeah. you know what what are ways that that, that those folks can help? 
Yeah. So we um, we do some of this, too, with um, folks who want to be a part of our community. Um, um, and in terms of an ally and an advocate for Black and Latinx folks in these spaces, one of the things that we often say is, like, make space. Hmm. Make space for them, you know, and, and oftentimes that means not being the one to always speak in meetings. But hmm. if you know you have a Black or Latinx colleague that has expertise in a certain area or has done a really good job on a product, highlight and lift their voices in those meetings. Showcase their work in lieu of your own and give them voice in dark spaces in your organization where they would normally not be seen. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one. The other one I would say is get involved with the ERGs, which are the employee resource groups in your organization where uh, Black and Latinx folks, um, where uh, that are created by Black and Latinx folks and centered around their experiences within your organization and just ask. Mm -hmm. A lot of times they are willing to tell you um, if you come in um, with a heart and openness to learn um, and, and they'll let you know and then you know how to move and navigate. But the biggest one we say is when you are in spaces where you have more power, step back. Mm. Step back and give folks mm. in that space with less power the space and the opportunity to speak. And when you are in spaces where you have less power, step up. Mm. Speak up. Say more. Do more. Wow. That is so good, man. Mm. Gosh, that's so good. I want to I want to shift gears a little bit because um, one of the things that really stuck with me from our, our conversation um, we had before was the and it was it was tied to the pipeline thing but it's it it stuck with me in such a way that just yesterday and, and I do want to ask you about Brianna Taylor uh, mm -hmm. but just yesterday you know upon finding out you know that they didn't charge any of the officers in the Brianna Taylor case with with her murder. Mm -hmm. Actually charged them with wanton and one of them with wanton endangerment, which yeah. means that they endangered the white neighbors. I heard they were white neighbors. I, I guess I should double check that, but they endangered the neighbors. I don't know that I don't know for sure what the yeah. ethnicity was, but they endangered the neighbors. Mm -hmm. That was what they were charged with, basically shooting drywall, overshooting a black woman. Mm -hmm. But I I was reading yesterday on the case, and I was looking at um, some of the you know facts of it. One was that Brianna Taylor's ex boyfriend. Um, was a drug dealer. They believed that, that, that he was trafficking drugs through Brianna Taylor's apartment, that Brianna Taylor's boyfriend, current boyfriend, shot first because he thought it could have possibly been the ex-boyfriend trying to come into the house. So as I was reading this, I went, oh, this is the alternative narrative mm -hmm. that gives justification for the systemic racism and white supremacy that ultimately led to Brianna Taylor losing her life. Mm -hmm. And I remember talking to you about the pipeline thing and, and I remember going, oh, it's so easy to buy into the narrative that, oh, this is this is black and brown folks issue. Like the reason why we're not hiring them mm -hmm. is because, you know, they're not, they're not getting their education. They're not doing they're this. Qualified. They're not qualified, mm -hmm. All of those things. And, and it shifts the responsibility, the burden yes. over onto black and brown folks. And even in the case of Breonna Taylor, all of these mm -hmm. narratives show up to try to shift it to, mm -hmm. well, it was her fault. She shouldn't have been around mm -hmm. people like that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, and you're absolutely right. And we see that in the media all the time, right? We saw that with George Floyd when they tried to um, bring up his past criminal history. We see that actually every time a, a black man is arrested or a black woman in this case, a black man is arrested, they are quick to bring up their past, right? As the justification that you spoke of to uh, 
them losing their life. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see this narrative, not just in the criminal justice system, we see this narrative play out in every aspect of our country when it comes to black and brown people. Mm-hmm. And so you heard me reference the Wells Fargo CEO, where mm-hmm. that's a very clear example of him shifting the narrative, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we mm-hmm. see that in tech, and we see that in every industry that we're in. It is. It's a scapegoat because no one who is benefiting from these systems wants to see them dismantled or torn down. No one wants to see them uh, taken away and shifted so that power is shared across people. They don't want to see that because they profit from them the way they are. Yeah. They benefit from them the way they are. They maintain power because of them being the way they are. And so, yes, they have to do all this work to scramble, to shift focus, to shift blame, to shift attention, right? Because this is also a distraction from us dealing with the real issues. The real issues being laws that were originally designed, right? To protect police, mm-hmm. to protect the injustices that we see. And so when we see things like this happen, yes, I'm... I'm sad, I'm angry, I'm enraged at this, but I am also more enraged that these laws exist Mm -hmm. for them to lean on to um, justify the lack of indictments, to justify mm. the actions of these police officers. Again, the narrative is, is, is crucial. It really is. Yeah, it is. And now, now I'm, uh, I'm looking at you, a black woman. Mm-hmm. I have, you know, my wife, I've got three black daughters and, and I, whew, man, I, you know, this is the most high profile black woman. Yeah. You know, in terms of the, the, the reach of this story, mm-hmm. how has it impacted you? Um, just, you know, Brianna Taylor's name comes up just about every day now and, and, and for it to come to this conclusion, or maybe it's not, hopefully it's not a conclusion, but to come to this decision yesterday, how's that, how's that impacted you and affected you? Um, they're just no words. Hmm. They really are. I'm a mom. I have three daughters and, um, I have a son as well. Um, we're a blended family. And I think there was a time when, and it was really naive naive of me to say then, um, but I'll acknowledge that I said it. There was a time when I could, when I would look at my girls and think they were safe because these things were only happening to black men. Hmm. Incredibly naive. I'll, I acknowledge that. Um, but it's scary as a parent. It's scary to know that you can do everything in your power to prepare your kids um, for what you believe life to look like and be as a black woman and how to navigate that and know that still there are forces beyond your control that can snuff out their life with no reason um, and with no repercussions. I think the weight of that reality for me as a parent is oftentimes more than I can sit with. Mm. It is. So in our home, we do everything we can, like so many other Black families, to talk to our kids, to educate them, to resource them, to empower them. I teach my kids to speak up for themselves. I teach my kids what it means to be Black in this country and why we automatically have a target on our back and how we navigate this world until we can change it and how they can be a part of the change as well. Mm. Um, And I think I have that responsibility to them. Mm. to set them up for success. Um, 
to give them the best chance of surviving in a world that is doing everything they can to to not see them thrive, to not see them breathing. Yeah. It's heavy. It really is, man. And speaking of your kids, I remember you told me that that you were working in ministry and you left ministry mm-hmm. because of an incident with your kids and, and mm-hmm. school, um, you know. And then you said something at, when you were talking about that that, that I wrote down. Uh, and it's this idea that what you found in advocating for your children with the racist experiences that they had at school was that that the white folks that you were dealing with wanted, they would, they didn't want to fix the issue. They just wanted you to be quiet. They'll do enough to, for you to be quiet, but not enough to actually deal with the systemic issues. Yes, that's true. And I'll clarify to say, and I think I feel like I've done enough work over the last couple of years to say that I was actually fired from my last job in ministry because I was asking for that to happen. Mm. I was asking for them to do more. I was asking for them to speak out, to be consistent, not just, you know, in their well, first to decide, because we see that this very lukewarm stance of um, we'll do just enough to appease the people of color, the few people of color in our congregation, um, to not ruffle their feathers and cause them to leave, but not enough to actually do any real change work. Right. Mm-hmm. So I saw that happening um, when I was in ministry, not just with black folks, but with the LGBT Q plus community as well, where we would say, yes, come in, we welcome you, but you can only do these things, right? You're going to make me bring the organ back. A podcast (laughs) for another day, right? Yes. And so as I was like asking um, for us to do the work that Christ asked us to do in these spaces, um, it wasn't liked. And so dealt with microaggressions, dealt with what I can say now was a really hostile work environment and I was, I was let go. I was let go. And I will tell you, looking back today, it was the best decision. That environment was toxic. It was not only toxic for me, it was toxic for my children to see me in. It was toxic for other people to watch me try and navigate. And yes. And so for me, I still consider myself a minister of the gospel. I just am grateful that I don't have to report to the oversight of a pastor and a church to do the work that I know Christ has called me to do. Um, And so that's what I've had the um, privilege of doing in the space that I'm in now. But you're right. I did get started because my daughter, her first year of high school in the town that we live in, she experienced racist um, incidences on campus. And again, much like the church, a lot of uh, talk with no action, a lot of let's meet, let's discuss, let's brainstorm ideas, and there was no action. And I remember getting parents together. Uh, We called the news media. We protested. We stood outside of the superintendent's office. I met with the superintendent. We organized rallies. And just months later, realized that nothing was going to change because they don't want to change. They, the population of uh, black students on her campus was less than 2%. And so for them, the effort it took to make the necessary change was not worth it, Mm. was not worth their time and their resources. And so I chose to pursue a career and work that would would produce meaningful long-term change. So while I work specifically in tech, my hope is that it will expand to every industry. Yeah. So, okay. Last question. And I, I'm putting you on the spot here because I didn't ask, <laughs> I didn't tell you I was going to ask you this. And this is a big okay. question. 
right? And okay. I, I, get, I get asked it all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think my answer has been different probably almost every time I'm, uh, if someone asks me. Mm-hmm. I don't believe that we will see the finish line in our lifetime. Like, I do not believe, that, especially when you talk about anti-racism and, yeah. and, and our resistance of injustice. I don't think any of us that are in this should allow our minds to believe that our lifetime will be the one that does it. But if you were to describe this utopian finish line of of justice and and the you know and 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 people doing the work and they're actually being um, something done, what does it look like to you? What does that end look yeah. like? That's a really big question. It's too and, big, right? <laughs> and here's what I'll say too: um, we, I won't say we. I'll speak for myself. I I don't know that I've ever freely given myself permission to envision what the finish line would look like because mm-hmm. we spend so much time just trying to get through the day, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, this season, 2020. Um, and so I, I'm going to mm-hmm. say like, this is just like, we call it cookie dough because it's not baked. It's not finished mm-hmm. complete. So I'm going to give you some cookie dough in cookie terms dough of- great. We've been eating that that raw for a long time now. Okay, so there you go. Yeah, okay, that works. (laughs) I think for me, um, when I envision the future, um, I think I do see Black and Latinx people, Asian Americans and Indigenous people in all levels of government. And I see systems that are rebuilt that are inclusive of the culture and needs of every citizen in this country. I see an overhaul on an immigration system that right now is really detrimental to the health of people. Be one that, um, Mm. that is repaired, you know, Mm -hmm. um, that doesn't involve snatching children from their families, dragging Mm. women and men, um, out of their homes and deported, but a process that is fair and equitable for the Latinx people that come in through the Southern border as it Mm -hmm. is for the white European Mm -hmm. folks that come in through, Mm -hmm. you know, our Eastern borders. Mm -hmm. Um, I envision a justice system that is completely overhauled um, and sensitive to the history that it has created for black men and women in this country. Mm -hmm. Um, it's corrected itself. Um, And I think I see, I think the other area that really is close to my heart is our educational system. Mm. Um, One of the reasons I moved into this community was because of the education that our kids are afforded living here. And even still, even Mm -hmm. still, even with all of that, even with this high rent I pay, right? (laughs) (laughs) My beautiful black girls and my handsome son is still shut out of information and opportunities that would allow them to succeed. Mm -hmm. And so I see that being a place where families could get the resources and education for their kids, regardless of their zip code, you know, that there isn't this competitive edge to, uh, what it looks like to educate our kids. I love that. I love that so much. I mean, that's like, that was, uh, that was a poetic and artistic imagination of a future of, of, mm-hmm. of what I often refer to as the age to come that I do think mm-hmm. it's going to take divine energy 
to make oh, yeah. happen, right? It's like it's like mm-hmm. what you're describing is 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 out there, but it's also mm-hmm. so possible. Yes. And I love that you gave us that gift of describing for us what the future looks like. And what I think is uh, um, often unfair is that, you know, to that question that I asked you is that oftentimes people who really aren't interested in the answer to that question will ask it just to see if we, if we've imagined it. Mm-hmm. And then their follow-up question is, well, how do you do that? And right. that's not our job. That's right. But we can imagine it and we can do our part, Mm -hmm. but people are like everyone listening to this and everyone who would ever hear that articulation you just gave of the future Mm -hmm. that is more just than the one we're in um, has a part to play and a role to play in bringing that to pass. And that, that part to play is not by cross-examining it. It's by saying, yeah, that sounds beautiful. Let's get after it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So thanks for that. Thanks for yeah. your time today. I so appreciate it. This has been this has been great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And I think, I don't know, just you even asking that question, I think it calls our attention to begin imagining it if we haven't. Mm-hmm. The work, the day-to-day work of survival as a you know black person in this country is such that it takes all of our time and energy and effort, right? But I think there is something to imagining the world for what we want it to be for future generations. And Mm -hmm. it requires us to stop and pause. And I think you've just challenged me to, to do, do more of that. So thank you. Well, the imagination is painful Mm -hmm. because it's so different Mm -hmm. from the everyday reality. That's right. And so I get it. Like, it's just, it's, it's, it it takes, especially if you, if you're, if you're a black woman, Mm -hmm. In the United States, mm-hmm. like <laughs> to yeah. to start to let yourself imagine, man, it would be great to be able to to yeah. have my voice be heard. Yeah, um, you know, with without having to to jump through a thousand hoops That's to get all. there. Listen. Right there. Right there. Yes. 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 Yeah. So, well, thank you so much. I really, this has been amazing as I knew it would be. Um, So let me, let me say bye to all of you who are listening to um, this episode. Thank you to all of you who are part of the Patreon community. Uh, Be sure you check the the show notes because I want y'all to stay in touch with with Danielle and and the work she's doing. It's incredible. Um, Also, rate and review the podcast if you've not already and i'd like to thank comfort fit for the music the song you're listening to is once again called sorry and thank you to all of you for contending for a better world with us one conversation at a time Sorry.